Hi, I'm Mark Brody, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, bigger bases, a pitch clock, and more, how rule changes are impacting the Cactus League season. And a podcaster brings her message of emotional honesty to the stage in Phoenix. But first, it is time for the Friday Newscap and some voices from the news this week. No, I'm not involved with the Sinaloa cartel. I'm not taking bribes from them, and I'm not laundering their money. I have received an overwhelming amount of of people coming to me saying that it's time to get rid of charter cities. It's a a very old rule that was developed over a hundred years ago in our Constitution, and it's time we start looking at our Constitution and realizing that we've grown as a state. What this does, it exempts a tax on essential items for people to survive and live. Bread, eggs, Let's just stop playing whack-a-mole with taxes and our cities. When we change one tax that our cities are allowed to do, you're just whacking the mole. It's going to pop up and become another tax in another place. So it's very much them being elected, wanting a certain person in charge while they're there, and controlling only that person in that role, and not thinking in the future, if a Democrat steps into that role, then we want them to have all power as well in the future. And joining me to talk about changes potentially coming to Cochise County elections, a ban on cities' food taxes advancing in the legislature and more, our former state school superintendent, Jaime Molera of Molera Alvarez. Good morning, Jaime. Good morning. Glad to be here. And Democratic strategist, Tony Connie. Tony, good morning to you. Hello. So let's talk first off about what seemed like a uh, pretty significant uh, trying to backtrack among a lot of Republicans in the legislature from some comments made last week during a a joint uh, hearing on elections and election security and goodness knows what else about elections. Um, You had both House Speaker and the Senate President basically saying this was not okay. You had Senator Wendy Rogers saying it wasn't okay. You had the uh, Representative Liz Harris who invited this particular guest saying it's not okay. I mean, what do you you make of all these people backtracking, trying to seemingly trying to out-backtrack each other? Well, I... It's one of the few times, and it, I was heartened by the fact that something as preposterous as that, as that finally got called out as, wait a minute, time out. This is, even that's over the top. I mean, to say that all of our elected officials are being um, bribed and influenced by the Sinaloa cartel is just, it's silliness. And so finally, leadership had to say something because I think their credibility is was on the line. If they were um, going to allow this kind of false accusations to occur. What was it about, like, was it just that these accusations were, like, was it something about these accusations that crossed the line that well, others hadn't? I think because they were implicated. <laughs> I think they were the ones being, <laughs> That'll do it, huh? They were, they were being accused of being a part of this, uh, these shenanigans that were going on. It wasn't just Governor Hobbs. They were saying everybody in the legislature was doing it, save maybe Liz Harris. But it, it just, it was silly, and they had to come out and say something. Now, Wendy Rogers did, although it was somewhat muted, I think Speaker Toma, I think uh, Senator T.J. Shope, I think they were much more aggressive in saying, well, time out, like I said, time out. This is ridiculous. Let's let's get back to the real issues. Well, somewhat real issues. <laughs> but let's say that this was uh, just outside the box. Well, and Tony, interestingly, 
from uh, Senator Wendy Rogers, from Representative Harris, a big part of their statements were this wasn't the appropriate place to bring these accusations. It wasn't so much these accusations are outlandish and ridiculous, but it's like you shouldn't bring them here. You should bring them maybe to the attorney general or some law enforcement agency. Yeah, I mean, that that testimony went on for about 45 minutes before Ken Bennett hit his limit and made a point of order and stopped it. And the thing that's interesting to me about that is, you know, if you are speaking at a, an elections committee and you use the word election denial, Wendy Rogers is going to like shout you down and be like, you can't talk. So like they will stop these things. They, you know, they have the authority to do it, but they let that go on and on and on until they felt the backlash. And once they felt the backlash, I, you know, they felt obligated to say something. But the same pressures that lead them to want to allow these types of people to speak, the same sort of external you know, MAGA Trump stuff, th those pressures are still there. They're still coming. And so they're feeling, you know, so now they do this muted statement, but you're already seeing, you know, Liz Harris has an email campaign that's going to the legislature to try and protect her. And that's, you know, th they're very focused on keeping that very, very small minority of loud conspiracy theorists happy. And hopefully this is a moment where the Republican leadership realizes like, hey, we just, we can't do this anymore. Jaime, do you see this as maybe an inflection point? Well, it's interesting because uh, the folks that Liz Harris has been touting, right, as some of the election deniers and part of this uh, group that's been pushing this agenda have now turned against her. They mm -hmm. said, well, she, you're, you're turning your back on the cause and you're a traitor to our efforts. After her statement basically saying this wasn't the right, right time after and place to do this. She distanced herself from yeah. this crazy accusations. So I'm not sure that this is a moment of clarity <laughs> that's going to happen within the GOP. I, I wish it were, but um, at least when something as crazy as this comes out, I, I, I'm, I'm heartened, like I said, that leadership said, wait a minute, we're not going to go to those as outlandish things as this is. I, I just hope they would do that with other issues as well. I think, though, if I could say, it's like it's not a huge surprise that this happened. I mean, Warren Peterson, the appointed Wendy Rogers, after everything that she said and everything that she's done as the chair of this powerful committee. And of course, this kind of stuff is going to come up and she's not going to be the type of person who's going to stop it. That's not who she is. And so there is some responsibility that they need to take for putting people like her in power when they had a choice not to. Well, Jaime, I want to ask you about that because, as you say, both Speaker Toma and President Peterson came out fairly strongly against what was said. But they also are the ones who facilitated the hearing in the first place, right? Like, do, do they bear well, any responsibility for well, that? The, the only thing we have to remember, I mean, the politics of this, you, you only have a one-person majority in each the House and in the Senate. So you have to try and placate a lot of your members. And when Wendy Rogers said, that's my issue, I want on that issue, I raised a lot of money on this issue, mm -hmm. um, I want to take this on, it's hard for a president to say, I'm sorry, you're not going to be able to do that. So those are some, you have to accommodate it because when you have a one vote majority, it's really tenuous to be the leader at that point. Yeah, tenuous being the key word here. So Tony, let's uh, go to uh, another election story from this week, that in Cochise County, where the Board of Supervisors, which has <laughs> gotten some national attention over the last several months, voted to basically make the elected recorder, David Stevens, also the elections director. Basically, he will now be in control of 
all facets of elections down there. He is somebody who has been described as an election skeptic, an elections denier. What do you make of, of this move by the Cochise County supervisors? Well, I know that there, you know, there's a history where this type of move might be legal. There's some questions about the process that they followed. But, you know, the, the, the how, I think, is an issue. But really, the why is very disturbing. And the reason why they've decided to make this change is because they are they 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 are, are are giving in to these conspiracy theories and that's dangerous i mean they've the 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 focus on Cochise County that was brought because of the wanting to do a hand recount and a not lot of the, the, the stuff election, that yeah. happened not certifying the election that brought a lot of uh national scrutiny on them and i so i think they're seeing what what happens when the whole world when you want to be the center of election denial in the country people are going to pay attention but it also led to a bunch of like death threats and attacks and all this kind of stuff where, you know, the, it chased away the woman that was running their elections, who's regarded as one of the best in the entire country at her job. And so it, it's really concerning that the, re- the reason why they did this. And one other thing to say about this is that, is that he's also affiliated with Mark Fincham uh, with the Election Fairness Institute, which is, you know, basically a propaganda outlet for election deniers. And Mark Fincham is raising money off of all of this. And so it's a very weird ethical situation too. So Jaime, as Tony alluded to, there have been issues, situations in the past where counties, Maricopa County, had this kind of arrangement in the past. Is it troubling that the person who will be basically in charge of elections in this county has said he maybe doesn't trust machines, doesn't trust the process that uh, elections are run by? Well, I think it's very troubling. I mean, because you have a situation in Cochise County where they're saying, we want to go to a full hand count. And and every statistical uh, analysis and every um, research study has shown hand counts are the, probably the worst way to do it if you really want to have verification of elections. They, they are. I mean, it, when you look at the ballots, and I tell folks, think about counting 10,000 ballots. I know it's a lot more than that, mm-hmm. but just 10,000 ballots during a general election when you have literally hundreds of questions. You have to count all the judges. You have to count all the propositions. Mm-hmm. You have to count everything. It's two sides of a long piece of paper. And it's, it's something that it's prone to human error. And so when you turn it over, not just to somebody that um, doesn't like the science and doesn't like things that actually can work, but you also turn it over to a partisan. And I would say this if it's a Republican or a Democrat, and you take it out of the nonpartisan sphere that really should be looking at how do you count this in a way that's unbiased, Mm -hmm. um, that's very troubling. It's also interesting, though, that Secretary of State Adrian Fontes has not come out super strongly against this. He he doesn't seem to be... Super like, oh, gosh, we, like this is this is terrible. Well, I, I think a lot of this um, also is he's a deaf politician. <laughs> and when you're letting when your opponents are kind of doing a good job of shooting themselves in the foot, you're letting them put the bullet back in the chamber and shoot the other foot. So I think he's he has come out and said, you know, I disagree with a lot of these things. But you're right. It's, it's not as as uh, vocal as you think he might be. Right. And Tony, this is a temporary, uh, the clip we heard in the, in the montage, this is a temporary thing through the, uh, through the end of, of next year's election. Would you anticipate that we might see, for example, hand counts in, in Cochise County in 2024? We might see some of the stuff that, that David Stevens really thinks is the right way to go happen down there? Yeah, we, we might, but one of the challenges that they have is that there's a Democratic Attorney General, a Democratic Secretary of State, and they're going to hold him 
uh, accountable to the laws of our state. And so, you know, I, they might choose to ignore those and then there's going to be a standoff and then they're going to raise money off the standoff and they're going to say this is proof that there's tyranny. But really, the, the rule of law is important. Nothing is more important than counting our votes and doing it in a way that's accurate and fair and bipartisan. And, and I do think that our elected officials are going to work to hold them accountable if they try to break the law. And we saw this week the attorney general weighing in on this, basically saying, if you know of a law that says you're allowed to do this, we'd sure like to hear about it. Right. Yeah. She's watching. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is Tony Connie. I'm also joined by Jaime Molera. I am Mark Brody in Phoenix in the midst of the Friday News Camp. Tony, let's start with uh, a bill that uh, – actually not a bill, more of a, 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 a referral uh, in the state senate that would essentially repeal charter cities. These are cities – uh, that are able to have their voters, their residents approve uh, a charter that allows them to do things that are mostly of local control, things like elections and things like that. Um, there's a, a measure in the Senate that would ask voters to basically repeal that. And uh, the sponsor, uh, Senator Justine Wadsack of Tucson, has basically said it's because of Tucson's election system. Yeah, there's this – this inclination for state interference in what's happening in local government has been going on for a long time in Arizona, but it's really hit a fever pitch in this session. Um, and you know, essentially, the charter is the constitution for a city, and in order for a charter to be updated by a city, they have to have a vote of the people. And 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 you know, you've seen charter updates that have happened in both Phoenix and in Tempe in the past couple of years related to elections. And what the 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 legislature is saying is. We don't really care how you want to run your elections. We don't care if you want to have a, a campaign finance system that you know has a smaller donation limit like Tucson does and like Tempe does. We think that the state should be in control of all of this. And that's just not something that the people want. It's certainly not something that Republican mayors want, Democratic mayors want. You know, cities, people are pretty happy with their cities no matter what you hear these legislators say. And this type of interference is just a waste of their time. Yeah, I mean, this is interference has been happening. I mean, go back to the Bisbee bag band band, which was a real fun <laughs> thing to say at the time on the radio. But, you know, this is one that the measure did not pass through the Senate. But, you know, th there are some thoughts that maybe it would be uh, tweaked a little bit to get a, a couple uh, Republicans who voted no on board. Is, is this mostly a, an interference issue, state against cities? No, I, I personally think it's uh, Senator Justine Wadsack's uh, animosity towards the city of Tucson. That's what it boils down to. Mm. She does not like the fact that the city of Tucson has at-large at voting, which tends to favor, at least in Tucson, the Democrats, and you, you eliminate the possibility of any Republican in Republican areas from having – if it were a district system, for instance, they would be able to have a higher likelihood of getting some representation. So right. I think that's what it really comes down to. And uh, but, but, but there's a lot of collateral damage by saying, OK, if I want to focus on Arizona, you can't just focus on a single issue or a single city. Um, you'd have to set up a threshold and I think that the way they're going to do it is by saying now in order to uh, get the opponents of it, which were Ken Bennett uh, up in Prescott, uh, T.J. Shope and right. Casa Grande that also have charter cities. Mm -hmm. They said, well, look, we don't want you to put our cities into this mess and m mess us up. So they're going to have a threshold probably of about 500,000 population or more which would then just capture Tucson and Phoenix and maybe uh, other cities. Mesa maybe at some maybe, point, right? Correct. Yeah. So uh, Tony said that, you know, and, and we've 
alluded to the fact that, you know, state versus cities is kind of a, a mm-hmm. perpetual issue at the legislature. Another one coming up is the food tax. Food we tax. saw the residential rental tax uh, ban that uh, the legislature passed that Governor Hobbs vetoed. The food tax is another one that a lot of cities are saying, look, you know, this is fine. A lot of cities don't have food taxes. But for the ones that do, they say we rely on this revenue. And if you take it away, we're going to have to slash our budgets. The reason why I don't think this one is getting the same kind of attention is because this is actually a bill as opposed to what Justine Watsack is doing, which is an SCR, a concurrent resolution, which will go to the voters. Kitty Hobbs has no say in that. Right. If they get 16 and 31, 16 senators, 31 Republicans, the majority, then it just goes to the voters to decide. With this particular issue, the governor would have to sign it. And and there's a lot of feeling that eh, there's no way she's going to sign it. Even the Republicans that may not like it and may feel like it's an intrusion of their local communities and they know it would be a hardship and, and their cities have gone to them and saying, look, please don't do this. They're saying, well, don't worry about it. This is not going to go anywhere anyway. So that's one of the reasons why it hasn't gone to that level yet. Tony, do you have a sense, and I've not seen any polling, I don't know that any polling exists on this, if the referral about charter cities went to the ballot, do you have sort of a gut feeling about how Arizonans would, would vote on that next year? I haven't seen any polling on it, but I do know that Arizonans tend to be pretty happy with their cities. And I I have a feeling that it would be a difficult thing to pass. It's also one of those things where you have to think like, where's the money going to come from in order to make it an actual election? And I could see, I don't know how much money would be spent to try and make, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but I I, I bet you that I, I don't think that voters would be down for this or the idea that like, Hey, the legislature can do these people who we don't, you know, these these people all the way in in Phoenix are going to be able to tell us what to do. I just I just don't think that would happen. And I also find it a little bit of an irony. The senator was talking about how this is an old and this happened, you know, in our constitution and it needs to be updated. Well, that's what a lot of liberals say about the U.S. Constitution (laughs) too. I was thinking the exact same thing when I heard it. So I'm a little bit, uh, well, wait a minute, time out. That's not what conservatives usually like to say. And, And I think if it were to go to the ballot, Arizonans love local control. And I think that would be a very hard hurdle for the the proponents of this to get over. It seems like it would be sort of a natural argument for cities to make, which is you could say overreach. You could say, look, the the state is trying to take over what we do. Like, why are we going to let that happen? Correct. It's interesting what you said about the the age of laws, especially, mm-hmm. you know, in the last several months we've been talking about in, in the context of an abortion ban that was passed around the time of the Civil War. Mm-hmm. But you don't really hear – you hear a lot of Democrats talking about that. You don't hear a lot of uh, folks like Justine Watsack saying, well, that law is – which is older than the <laughs> right. state constitution saying that's a problem. It's kind of an interesting concept. That's right. Well, and, and I think you can have it both ways. Conservatives, you know, you got to protect what why you believe it's – the constitutions are important. And have a higher threshold. Yeah. Tony, I'm curious to get your take on what Jaime said about the, the food tax, the, the issue being that it would have to go through Governor Hobbs. We've already seen her veto a, a bill that would get rid of uh, residential uh, rentals. Not sure what she would do. I mean, she hasn't said specifically what you do on the food tax, but there's at least a reason to maybe think she would veto that. Well, I think that th- these are huge conversations that should be a part of the larger budget. I think mm. that's a thing that uh, that she said with with her, her veto of the of the of the the rental tax. And th- this, th- you know, the 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 tax on grocery stores, the TBT on on food, is something that um, doesn't exist in every. It's not statewide. It doesn't exist in every city. But in the cities that it does exist in, it's a it's a reliable source of income. If you're on you know, benefits like SNAP, you're not taxed, right? So, you know, so already a lot of the the people who are uh, the most vulnerable don't have to pay for it. I understand why people might want to 
uh, eliminate it. But it, it, it has a huge impact on cities. And that's why you have Republican and conservative mayors saying like, hey, because they don't have the ability to do an income tax. There's a right. deal that they struck with the state, you know, that basically said we're our income is going to be coming from these types of TPT, these types of sales tax. And they need to have that kind of a reliable income. Otherwise, it's it's going to or revenue. It's it's going to it's going to impact their their public safety budgets. Tony, let's talk about some uh, internal Democratic politics at mm-hmm. the state legislature. We saw a, a little bit of a shakeup in uh, Senate Democratic leadership over Kel Turan, the, the uh, minority leader in the Senate. Staying in the legislature, but stepping down from a leadership position, Mitzi Epstein has become the uh, the new uh, minority leader. And I, I guess it's it's not much of a surprise, right, that that Tehran would be thinking about running for Congress in what is now Ruben Gallego's seat. Seems like it's going to be a fairly wide primary, robust yeah. primary might be the word that people would use. And, you know, the senator is a really responsible person. I've, I've, I've worked with her before and she is being honest about the fact that she is considering this run and she wants to be able to have somebody in leadership who can spend the amount of time in, in, in leadership on these things. And so I, I'm, I'm excited. I hope she runs. Uh, I, I think it'd be great. Um, but, you know, when a, a seat like this opens up, you, you, you and, 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 you have to consider it if you're an elected official and people are, I'm sure, asking her to run. It, it doesn't come around very often. Right. And so even if you had a plan, I'm going to do this for a couple of years and then maybe I'll seek higher office, it, it, it's just happening. It's going to be a wide open primary, um, you know, and, and, and she'll continue doing her job as a senator. But uh, I, I don't I don't think this is that big of a, a shakeup. I know some on the Republican side have tried to paint this as some sort of a Dems in disarray kind of thing, but it's just a silly thing. It's just a, it's a leadership change. I mean, as Tony said, this is a pretty significant opportunity. It's a very reliably, safe, reliable Democratic district, the kind of seat that if you win, you could theoretically stay there forever, like Ed Pastor more or less did. Would you expect to see a, a pretty big field in this as well? I do. I, I, and I think it's going to be a very – and every time this has happened before, when, when Ruben Gallego ran for the seat, it was contested mm-hmm. and it was a pretty hard-fought uh, campaign because you're exactly right. Um, if you get that seat, you're going to be there for a long, long time unless a U.S. Senate seat opens up and then you decide <laughs> to run for that. But, but the thing that's what surprised me a little bit with uh, Rical Terran's uh, move, being the minority leader isn't a lot of power, but it's also a lot of visibility. And I'm slipping from the the policy and maybe the right thing to do. I'm just talking about raw politics here. I was surprised that she stepped down from that seat because a lot of times, because this is a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, why wouldn't you leverage your ability as minority leader to really start to put yourself in a better position? Um, I guarantee you, uh, Laura Pastor, who's also thinking about running, the vice mayor of Phoenix, um, she's not going to step down from any position in order to gain an advantage. So that's why I was a little bit... um, um, curious as to why that happened. You're and that's like, who she is. I mean, every advantage she's you a, have. She's a serious yeah. legislator. Like she's she's not thinking about the the you know that that type of implication. You know, that's the kind of thing that a political hack like me would say. It's like, hey, you know what? You get more press if you're the minority leader. You should stick in. But but you know, I I, I respect her for that type of decision. I, I, and I'm not saying I don't respect right, her for course, that. Right, I'm course, just sure. saying, as a political hack, <laughs> I think that was a little curious. And, uh, you know, you got to start thinking in those terms, as you know, yeah. in order to get that kind of advantage, because you're going to need it every single opportunity in order to get 
at Earn Media that, you know, get in front of uh, you, Mark, and <laughs> be able to have that uh, audience that they can get to. And especially in a crowded primary, that becomes all the more important, Absolutely. right? Absolutely. All right. We'll have, have to leave it there. That is Jaime Molera of Molera Alvarez, Democratic strategist Tony Condi. Guys, thanks for coming in. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, a controversial Camelback Mountain Trail. But first, it might still feel like winter out there this morning, but spring training is here. Founded in 1947, the Cactus League has officially begun in the Valley, and it's the first chance anyone is getting to see MLB's new rules of the game in action. From a new pitch clock to bigger bases, the goal is to make the game move faster, but it's not come without its skeptics. My co-host Lauren Gilger got a taste of it all with Cactus League historian and reporter Charlie Vassalero when she met him at a game at historic Scottsdale Stadium earlier this week. It's early in the season. It's the San Diego Padres and the San Francisco Giants division rivals in the National League West, uh, teams that are very familiar with each other. And we've got a tie game now. And it's a tie game. It's 4-4 in the top of the sixth. Okay, so we're at Scottsdale Stadium, which I understand you wanted to do for a reason, because this is a stadium I know you care a lot about, but also it's a stadium with a lot of history, which is sort of your specialty in the Cactus League here. Tell us a little bit about this place. Yeah, uh, no Cactus League ballpark has served as home to more teams than Scottsdale Stadium. Since it was built in 1956, five teams have called Scottsdale Stadium home. Strangely enough, the first one was the Baltimore Orioles, came all the way from Baltimore. They played for two years in Yuma before that, but they were the team that opened this place up in 1956. 1956, that goes way back, that goes way back. It's been pretty recently really significantly renovated, right? They had a big renovation right before the pandemic in 2020, also to new stuff. They uh, added a level to the club out there, the Charo's Lodge, which is uh, like the exclusive VIP seating and uh, where you can eat and drink and it's all inclusive and they added that. They changed the entryway, uh, made much more of a grand entrance behind home plate. And, and uh, We got a big hit. Yep. Foul ball. And, uh, and also behind us up here, they, uh, the team built some um, executive offices and event space and stuff. But, but this ballpark, when it was first built, was just made out of wood. <laughs> I, yeah, it was the second Little Pig's house, and then it became the third Little Pig's house when they changed it to bricks in 1992. So this, this place has seen a lot of great baseball. Oh, yeah, all sorts of Hall of Famers. Uh, Brooks Robinson was a rookie here with the Orioles. Ted Williams uh, with the Red Sox, Carl Yastrzemski. Uh, Ricky Henderson, the great Ricky Henderson with the Oakland A's, ran around the bases when I was a kid in high school. I came to a game, I said, who in the world is that, you know? <laughs> So, I mean, this is the first time we've talked since the pandemic hit, which I think, you know, vastly changed baseball for a long time. It looks like there's a lot of people coming back. People are, are optimistic that spring training is going to come back full swing this season. What do you think? I'm one of those optimistic people. Um, you know, it's February 28th, so it's not even March, but we got almost, a, I'd say we got like a little bit more than half of a full house here today, maybe three quarters full. It's going to continue. And yeah, this is the first normal, let's, I, I hope, uh, in three years, you know, first normal Cactus League season. Last year, not only was were we still recovering from the pandemic, but there was a lockout, you may recall. There was a lockout at the same time. <laughs> yeah, so there was no games until the end. They got like one weekend at the end of the year last year. And uh, I was thankful for that, but it certainly didn't feel like the, the long, leisurely 
sit out in the sun for a month kind of spring training that I like to enjoy. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So are you glad to be back? This feels good? Oh, I, I, I'm, I'm the sun coming over my shoulder right now. I, 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 I'm relishing in it. Okay, so then let's talk a little bit about the big story that's happening in baseball right now, which is, of course, the rule changes. And spring training, sort of the first glimpse we're getting of, of how this is going to play out in Major League Ball. Tell us, first of all, what these big changes are. Okay, so the pitch clock is a big one. Pitchers only have 20 seconds to throw a pitch now. And you watch a game on TV, you see the pitcher shaking off the catcher's signs and waiting and waiting, and then the batter steps out of the box and adjusts <laughs> his batting gloves and his belt, and then the pitcher gets back. So they're trying to keep that to a, a minimal and get it moving. So now the pitcher has 20 seconds, and the batter has the last eight to be ready in the box. That's, so. that's a lot faster. Yeah, and I think uh, that's one that once we accommodate ourselves to it, we're going to all probably appreciate that. I'm looking out at those big pillows where the bases used to be. <laughs> and, uh, so the bases are, are bigger now than they used to be. The bases are bigger. They're a little closer. First base is a little bit closer to home plate. And second base is a little bit closer to first base. And third base a little bit. So you know, what they're hoping, and I think it will be true, you're going to see more steals, guys running the bases, which that's a, almost a lost art. I mentioned Ricky Henderson before. He sold 130 bases in a season. That's the record. And we all baseball fans figure that's one that'll never be broken. And I don't know that that will be broken, but it's going to at least get closer now because guys are going to be stealing bases more. There's also a rule about only being able to throw pickoffs twice over to the base before the, the, you simply give the base away. So, um, yeah, you're going to see more running on the bases. So, I, I mean, that seems like a good thing, but I understand purists, you know, baseball purists were not incredibly happy about these to begin with. Yeah, by their nature, baseball fans are nostalgic and time travelers, and they always want to go back in time. They don't seem to want to go forward, but we're getting thrust forward right now, and uh, you know, we'll see how we all respond to it. Uh, the players seem to already be embracing these changes. Are you sure? Because you said the first one of the first batters got struck out for taking too long. Yeah, though, that's the one way to learn. Uh, yeah, the second batter of the game it was Fernando Tatis got a called strike on him because he wasn't in the box in time. But I have heard that uh, players on some teams are looking forward to seeing what they can do with these rule changes and how it might benefit them and their teams. What are we seeing already this spring training season? It's only been a couple of days, really, but but it sounds like the, the verdict is in, at least the preliminary verdict, that these are making some differences. You know, I saw a guy steal a base in inning or two ago, and I knew he was going to be safe. I had a feeling he got a good jump on it, and uh, you know, that base did look a little bit closer when he put his foot down. And uh, I, th I think stolen base numbers are going to be dramatically up this year. Makes a lot of sense. Makes a lot of sense. So how do you feel about the fact that the game could move a little faster? It could be more of a running game. Well, I mean, I'm fine with spending as many hours at the ballpark as I can. <laughs> so I'm never in any hurry to get out. But I understand that, uh, you know, to, for people um, to get the attention span of the fan in today's world where things move fast and everybody's, uh, you know, fighting for your attention, trying to get people to look away from their cell phones or whatever else they might be doing. If there's action happening in front of them, I think uh, it's going to be more engaging and more compelling. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Do you think that, like, what do you feel about the state of baseball in general? Like, do you think that they can kind of recapture some of the young people who have fallen away from baseball and move toward the big NFL games and things like that that capture most of the ratings today? Yeah, the kids are always really what I would call the target demographic because that is the future. Uh, you know, my memories when I'm traveling in time backwards are always to the days when I was a kid, but something about the game got me. 
at a young age, and I hope that kids are still feeling that way. And if there's a way to uh, get them to want to be Ricky Henderson, you know. <laughs> so it sounds like as baseball is moving forward and we're watching the first glimpses of this here, there always has to be, and especially for spring training, right, like a note of nostalgia. As you say, baseball fans are always looking back. Do you think that we can balance that? Yeah, I think so. I'm sitting here in this 2023, and I'm balancing it in my own mind. I'm looking down the left field line right now. Remember when, when I was 18, 19 years old and standing in the dirt when those seats weren't even there and, you know, sneaking beer in when you could do stuff like that <laughs> and, uh, you know, the old days. But now here we are in the future, and I like some of what I see, too, here. I like the new amenities at the ballpark. I like that the Charles Lodge is so big. I'm, I'm all right with it. I like, you know what I like seeing? Women in the game. There's a woman coach for the uh, for the Giants. There's a woman hitting instructor for the Cleveland uh, Guardians this year in Goodyear. And I think that those are great strides to see women uh, advancing in the game. I think that's, that's one of the great things about the modern game, finally getting around to doing that. Wow, yeah, that's amazing that this is the first time that's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's not. The, it's 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 slowly happening, but it is happening. The announcement of the uh, Cleveland Guardians hiring a uh, woman batting instructor. I read that on the plane yesterday as I was coming in, and I and I said, "Wow, that's big." So yeah, I mean, the, this is this is the future. The future is happening right in front of us. All right, can't wait to see it, Charlie Vasilero. Thank you so much as always. You're welcome, Lauren. Thank you for having me. Charlie also put together an exhibit on Scottsdale's spring training history that's on display now at the Scottsdale Civic Center Library. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. When someone asks, how are you? For many of us, our natural inclination is to respond fine or good or something else positive. But what if we're not actually fine or good? What if we're really in a bad place or dealing with some pretty serious grief? Nora McInerney explores those emotions and how we process them on her podcast, Terrible, Thanks for Asking. She's bringing her stage show of the same name to Crescent Ballroom in Phoenix tonight as the kickoff of her Bad Vibes Only Tour. I caught up with McInerney earlier and asked what her performance involves. Our stage show is a little bit like a Netflix special or a one-woman show. We put some production value into it. We have a pre-written sort of story, an arc for the evening that takes our audience through a pretty wide spectrum of human emotions. Obviously, our show is called Terrible Thanks for Asking. The tour is called the Bad Vibes Only Tour, which is somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I think a reflection of the world around us not just in light of the past few years, which have been, I think, pretty objectively terrible. The vibes have been not the best. Yeah. But just what it means to be a person in the world, which is that you're going to experience a lot. And for me, the way through those hard things has been to attempt to be emotionally honest with the people around me and to try my best to create an environment for the people I care about where they can do the same. How do you try to achieve emotional honesty? Because it seems like it's hard internally, but also hard externally. It's so hard externally because America is a country that loves a winner. Yeah, We love a winner. We love if the setback is really just a setup for the comeback. I mean, good vibes only is, I think, the number one seller at Home Goods. I can't prove it, but if you go into a Home Goods, <laughs> you will be haunted by that phrase. It's just hard. It's hard to be honest about how 
difficult life can be because no one wants to be a bummer. No one wants to bring down the energy in the room. No one wants to be seen as incapable. Nobody wants to be seen as a sad story. And culturally, we are really uncomfortable with other people's discomfort. We want people to get over it, get through it, and be the better for it. And that might happen, right? That might happen. But first, it just kind of has to be terrible. Right. And I guess like when something bad happens, I mean, you had a a situation where your your husband died Mm -hmm. um, after a a fairly lengthy illness. And like when something like that happens, when you are going through something difficult, there's immense pressure to outwardly seem okay. But we're not really doing that for ourselves, right? We're doing that for the people who, in theory, would want to help us and would be able to handle the fact that we're not okay. Oh, yeah. It's so lonely. It's so lonely to be okay. It's so lonely to be okay. And if you would have asked me when my husband Aaron was sick with brain cancer, how I was doing, I would have been like, I'm good. We're good. We are so good. He had another seizure. We're so good. <laughs> We're, you know, a violent tumor is eating away at his brain and his sense of self and his motor skills. But we're good. We're good. You watch Game of Thrones? I did not want to be pitied. I did not want him to be pitied. And I will also say that every time I said the word fine, when it wasn't the truth, I made it almost impossible for the people who loved me to be there for me. Well, so if you are the person who is, in theory, trying to help somebody going through something, a friend, family member, coworker, whomever that might be, is there something better that you can say than, how are you? Or how's it going? Because if I say to you, how are you? Yeah. No matter what's going on in your world, you're probably going to say to me, oh, I'm doing well. I'm, yeah. I'm fine. Right? Yeah. But like, if you're not, like, what can we do to maybe elicit or help somebody get to that space of emotional honesty? I think there's always going to be a place for a small talk. I love it. Right? The kid at Target does not make enough to hear the truth. Okay. <laughs> like, and I apologize to him wherever he is. Okay. Because he was just asking how I was. And the truth was that my husband had just died. And I was hoping these throw pillows would fill the void uh. inside of me. I It was... He was shocked. I was shocked. I did not know all those emotions were going to come out. There's always going to be a time and a space for small talk. Not everybody deserves the truth. But for your personal relationships, the ones where you really do need people to know the truth and where other people really, really want to know, I don't ask, how are you? I ask. I'm trying to think of a really, really concrete example. You know, um, my father-in-law just died two weeks ago. When I see my mother-in-law, I'm not going to ask how she is. I'm going to say, how is it feeling today? How can I help you today? The how can I help you, I would imagine, would be extremely important. Yeah. And sometimes that's an overwhelming question too, right? Saying what can I do is like, okay, let me see if I can do a personal LinkedIn match between your skills and what I need. (laughs) But I do always say, one, offer something concrete. Offer something concrete that is within your wheelhouse, right? Something you can always say if you don't know what to say is I don't know what to say. Mm. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to say. This is horrible. The most helpful thing that somebody said to me after my husband died and it had been a couple months and I could sort of sense – that maybe people might be sick of me being sad. I was projecting. Nobody ever said that to me. One of my friends said to me, this is so sad, and it hasn't been that long. Well, it seems like by saying something like that, it it seems very open-ended, mm-hmm. which allows the person who's going through something tough to sort of either say nothing and maybe just accept a hug or yeah. cry or whatever or say thank you, 
or it gives them the opportunity to really say what's on their mind, which I would imagine is a really helpful thing for somebody going through something extremely tough. Yeah, you can always just show up and shut up, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So you are somebody, I mean, I've known you now mm-hmm. for, what, 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you <laughs> One are, of my closest friends. <laughs> absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Um, it seems like you are somebody who very much tries to infuse humor into what you're doing. I'm wondering how you how you do that, because a lot of the stuff you talk about and a lot of the people you talk to have gone through or are going through extremely difficult things. So I'm, I'm curious, like, what to you the, the appropriate role of humor yeah. is in all that? I have sometimes been... Uh, the worst person at this. But in my experience with my husband's illness, with my dad's illness, with all of these sort of difficult moments that have followed too, is that there are natural moments of levity in even the darkest story. I'm never trying to say, oh my gosh, isn't it so funny? I've got a I've got a funny story for you. My husband died. That's really not a it, it's it's not a funny story. It's not a funny story. It's actually a really, really sad story. And also my husband was just extremely, extremely funny up until his dying breath, truly. And one of those moments, um, we were sitting on his literal deathbed, and he said, I love you so much. When I am gone, will you please close the kitchen cupboards? <laughs> and I said, hell no. <laughs> I said, no, 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 I will not close the kitchen cupboards. They like to be left ajar so you can see where the cups are. How would you possibly remember where the cups are? If they're behind a closed door. But I will say I did. So, yeah, I don't know. Like when there's a difference to me between trying to like make something sad funny and letting the natural levity of the situation arise and give you room to breathe. And most people I know who have been through something horrible have a moment like that. All right. That is Nora McInerney, host of the podcast Terrible. Thanks for asking. She's also an author. She'll be bringing her live show Bad Vibes Only to the Crescent Ballroom in Phoenix tonight. Nora, thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So good to meet you. Camelback Mountain is perhaps the most iconic summit in the Phoenix Valley. Bearing an uncanny resemblance to the hoofed desert mammal, it's a popular hiking destination for locals and tourists. Camelback's Choya Trail reopened late last year after undergoing renovations. The show's Nick Sanchez took a hike to see the new trail and hear about why some residents feel it's not quite finished. When someone suggests a hike up Camelback Mountain, chances are you picture the ever-popular and heavily trafficked Echo Canyon Trail. Echo Canyon is one of the most challenging trails in Maricopa County, with intimidating rock walls, large boulders, and mostly high-grade trekking. It's also nearly impossible to find a parking spot after sunrise, and it's notorious for being the site of many hiking-related rescues year-round. If you're facing north, Echo Canyon falls on the west side of the mountain, near the proverbial camel's head. Choya Trail is located on Camelback's east side, closer to the tail. While still a challenge to summit, the trail features a more gradual climb that even includes secure steps going up. It's also more controversial than its Echo Canyon companion. 
Choya reopened last September after years of renovations, including a move away from Choya Lane. This was a welcome change to residents. Very seldom could I walk out at the front of our house and not see someone looking at me, okay, on the street. You know, they, it was crazy, all times of hours. That's Tim Moman, a Choya Lane resident who helped push for the city of Phoenix to move the trailhead. Before the renovations, he and his neighbors experienced overcrowding issues on their residential street. Over 10,000 people a weekend were going up the mountain on our side. Hiking after sunset, before sunrise, which you're not supposed to. Walking hikers in the middle of the street, blocking traffic. There were no public bathrooms for hikers to use either. So some people, would, when, the, when nature called, they had to go behind. They usually went down the wash in front of our house and other people's homes. That was seen by numerous neighbors in our neighborhood. So it just started getting worse and worse. The city of Phoenix shut down the trail in March 2020 to address safety concerns higher up the path and took advantage of the closure to move the trailhead entirely. The shift allowed hikers to access the trail off Invergordon Road, a more public street with more space for parking. Moman says since the trailhead was moved off of Troy Lane, he has not experienced any problems. With flushing toilets, drinking fountains, more signage, and even electricity to come, Choya Trail is now complete. Almost. Jerry Van Gass is an unofficial ambassador for the mountain, a preservationist and an avid hiker. He can be found on Camelback nearly every day. As someone who advocated for the trail's renovation, Van Gass is now stumping for a new project, a different name, but not Invergordon Trail. The trail no longer starts on Choya Lane. Uh, you know, we decided it's time for a new trail name. And uh, we, we couldn't think of anybody better than uh, Barry Goldwater to name it after. Uh, because frankly, uh, there would be absolutely no trails on Camelback Mountain if uh, he hadn't sought, had the vision to preserve it and fundraise to buy the rest of the mountain back in uh, 1965. The late U.S. Senator and one-time presidential candidate helped raise money for a purchase agreement with the federal government to prevent further development up the mountain. Goldwater's legacy, as well as the trailhead's move to Invergordon Road, inspired Van Gass's campaign to rename Troya Trail. Goldwater's conservation efforts were well documented in local media. He lived a couple miles east of Camelback on what's known as Scorpion Hill. It was a grassroots effort. That's what's great. He went to all the public schools. Uh, did fundraise, break your, bring in your piggy banks, etc. You know, masquerade balls, he'd dress up as whatever character he needed to to raise money. And it, it, it happened. And, uh, you know, it's irreplaceable. Uh, if there were homes on it, we'd, you'd never get it back and there'd be no trails on Camelback Mountain. And it inspired uh, a whole group of other advocates that wanted to conserve other mountains to go out and do the same. Van Gass calls Camelback Mountain Phoenix's greatest asset, particularly during the pandemic. Unlike a lot of cities where the gyms and everything closed up, you know, which they did here in Phoenix area, uh, people had this as an alternative. And uh, within a year of the, of the pandemic, uh, the commencement, uh, the numbers on these mountains almost doubled of hikers. And uh, now that the gyms are open and everything, a lot of those people have not gone back to gyms. They found that this is a lot more uh, uh, interesting, and, uh, and it's already paid for. So, On the saddle of the Troya Trail, I ask Van Gass if he ever gets tired of the panoramic valley views the mountain provides. Never. <laughs>
you know, sometimes I try and make sure I don't look downtown, <laughs> but <laughs> but the rest of it is absolutely incredible. Uh, yeah, I never get tired of it. I've been here 50 years, so obviously not. <laughs> A spokesman for the city of Phoenix says the Parks and Recreation Department is not currently working to rename the trail. For KJZZ's The Show, I'm Nick Sanchez. And that'll do it for this Friday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for being here. I am Mark Brody in Phoenix. Have a great rest of your day. Have a great weekend. See you right back here on Monday. That's it for this episode of the show podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Mark Brody for Lauren Gilger and Steve Goldstein. Thanks for listening today.